0: This is episode 229 with elite ultra marathoner and nutrition and exercise science PhD Ms. Stephanie Howe. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and this episode features a juggernaut from the ultra-endurance world, a prior winner of the Western States' 100-mile endurance run, numerous course record holder, Stephanie Howe. Stephanie has a PhD in nutrition and exercise science and works with athletes on dialing in their nutrition for better performance, recovery, and overall health. Today we're discussing fueling, fad diets, carb loading, and more. If you're new to the podcast, you can expect conversations just like this between me and other thought leaders in the running industry. My goal is to elevate your thinking about the sport, help you make wiser decisions about your training so that you can keep improving. Because if you better understand the process of improvement, when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. Don't miss our thriving YouTube channel where we just surpassed 55,000 subscribers. We have hundreds of videos on how to run longer, strength workouts, how to stay healthy and run with better form, and a lot more. Go to youtube.com slash strengthrunning, subscribe, and you'll see every video that we publish. And of course, strengthrunning.com is where it all began. Since 2010, we've been helping runners around the world level up their training, race faster, prevent more injuries, and get stronger. You'll find our award winning blog with topics as varied as how to know when you're ready to start training for a marathon, the biggest diet mistakes runners make, and more. You'll also find our free email courses on strength training, nutrition, injury prevention, and more. Plus, the full library of training programs and coaching services to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. This episode is supported by my favorite electrolyte company, Elemental Labs. Go to drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning, and you can sign up for a free sample pack of salty goodness with orange, citrus, raspberry, and unflavored options. You'll get eight packets, these four flavors, and you'll only have to pay five bucks for shipping here in the U.S., that's drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning. My guest today is Stephanie Howe. She's a nutritionist, having received her PhD in nutrition and exercise science from Oregon State University. Her doctoral dissertation focuses on the influence of exercise intensity on appetite in endurance trained women. And she now provides nutrition counseling services to athletes at her website, stephaniemariehowe.com. She's also an incredible athlete. She's the course record holder at both the Bandera 100K and the Lake Sonoma 50-miler. She's the 2014 winner of the Western States 100-mile endurance run and has numerous podium finishes around the world, including UTMB. In this episode, we're answering your questions. I frequently ask runners their specific questions for our guests, so make sure you're following me on either Twitter or Instagram. My handle is jasonfitz1. This conversation focuses on fueling for a variety of race distances, considerations for the type of fuel based on the event and intensity, how to make cooking at home simpler and more time efficient. Lord knows I need that with three kids running around. (laughs) We uh, talk about details on carb loading and a lot more. Finally, I asked Stephanie for her professional opinion on a few controversial subjects in the nutrition world, like the keto diet, fasting, bonk runs, and the carnivore diet. We had a lot of fun with this episode, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Ms. Stephanie Howe. Hey, Stephanie, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: So I am excited to chat with you because you are not just an ultra and mountain runner, you are not just a running coach, but you also have a PhD in nutrition and exercise science. And I love how these experiences and credentials that you have lead you just to be this huge resource for distance runners. So thanks for doing what you do.
1: Oh, yeah. Thank you. It's it's great to have the the education and then the application side of it as well.
0: Yeah, I think that really gives you a valuable perspective on things. And we have an interesting episode today because I received a whole bunch of questions for you from the strength running community. And I've added some follow up questions myself, but I want to acknowledge the runners who helped make this episode possible. So, first, I want to start with a question from Justin about fueling. And this is specific to the marathon. He wants to know Is there a point late in a marathon, say mile 22 or 23 or? 21, kind of wherever you might think it is, when the body really won't utilize fuel or liquids that you're consuming? Is there a point of no return where you should just stop eating and drinking in a marathon or is there value in continuing to do that?
1: Yeah, that's a great question and I think that's a common um question that I get from a lot of marathon runners. You know, they they start to feel that it's tough to get fuel in later in the race, but in in fact that's not your body doesn't stop absorbing calories. So there's a few things that you need to make sure that you have set in training so that in the race you're able to use fuel um or optimize your fuel intake. So so one, you want to use the right type of fuel. And the marathon intensity is quite high. So you want to have simple carbohydrates so it can get into your body quick and that your muscles can use it. Um, That's the number one thing. And that's usually the first mistake. The second mistake is not taking enough fuel early and often. So you want to take somewhere between 200 to 300 calories per hour. That sounds like a whole lot if you've never done it before. And so that's where trying it in training and really nailing it and getting your body used to it is super important because um, when you use carbohydrate, when you're doing your long training runs, your body... Is more efficient, and it actually upregulates receptors to process that carbohydrate. And so when you get into the race, then your body knows what to do with it. And then when you get towards the end of the race, one, you're able to keep processing those carbohydrates. And then two, from a mental standpoint, you've done it before. And so you know, when it gets tough, that you can keep taking in calories. And that way you don't hit the wall and bonk. (laughs) Because I'm sure we've all done that. And that is not fun.
0: Yeah, I've been there. I'd rather never go back there. (laughs) Now, is there any um, truth to the aspect of uh, tricking your brain that a lot more fuel is on the way? There was a fascinating study that came out a couple of years ago that simply swishing your mouth with some sports drink sort of fools the brain into thinking that more carbohydrates are on the way, even if you spit that Gatorade out or whatever sports drink you might be using. Is there value from a fueling perspective from Even if you are drinking the fluid or having a gel or something similar to that, is there also that interesting mental side of things as well?
1: Yeah, that's a, a really great research study, um, and it uh, is mouthwashing with carbohydrate solution. And that works in the shorter events where you're not limited by your stores of, of glucose or glycogen. And so by taking in or just rinsing your mouth with a carbohydrate solution, it does quote unquote, trick your brain into thinking that carbohydrates coming and that way, fatigue doesn't start to, to set in, in a longer race, and by longer, we'll say longer than 90 minutes, so probably half marathon or longer, that doesn't really hold true, because you actually start to deplete the, the glucose stores. And so you need that actual carbohydrate, because it might be a quick, you might get like a little bump from it, but it won't be long lasting. And then you'll just kind of tank. So, in a five k ten k though, that's a really great strategy to use, and maybe even up to a half marathon um that but that's kind of that cut point of like where it's actually more efficient to use the a, a real carbohydrate rather than just the mouth washing
0: yeah, you need you actually need the fuel, right? You don't need to trick your brain into thinking that there's fuel.
1: you do need the fuel, yep, yep. anything half marathon and and up, you do need the fuel.
0: no, you said it might be helpful for, say a five k. Would you swish with a carbohydrate drink immediately before, like maybe on the line of the race? Or is this something that you would actually do in the race? And and I assume if it's in the race, you would probably want to do it halfway point or or when is the most strategic point in the race for something like that?
1: Yeah. So the answer is it depends. Um, So if you take something right before the start, you just want to make sure, I guess if we back up even further, you want to make sure you have your blood glucose is up going into the race. So the, the worst thing to do is to eat like 90 minutes before <laughs> and then go to the start line. Because what happens is you take in fuel, your blood glucose goes up, your pancreas release insulin, and then your blood glucose goes down. And so you, you're on the start line then pretty low with your glucose. And that's, you'll, you'll, uh, Your body will respond and uh, mobilize glucose once you start, but you can feel a little bonky and that's psychologically not a good place to be in. So that is one, a strategy that you could use like on the line. If you've had a meal, you know, like 90 minutes to two hours before, that's not a bad idea to take in some carbohydrate and it can be the mouth rinsing or it could be just something really small like a gel or eight ounces of sports drink depending on tolerance level. In a 5k, you don't, you have stores, the The stores required to complete the event without fuel, you're not going to deplete your glycogen stores. And so it's more just that psychological and feeling good from the start. And just having, you know, being able to go from the start, you don't want to have that leg, especially in a 5k, because it's so fast, you want to be able to just like, be firing on all cylinders at the the very start.
0: Yeah, it's almost like doing your strides before the race. You know, you're optimizing how you're feeling right from the beginning. Yeah. I like that. Now, going back to eating in the marathon, late in the marathon. I've always thought that you should still continue to have a gel or some sort of sports beverage, whatever your personal preference is, not just for the performance enhancing benefits of that, because you're still getting in those extra calories, that extra glucose, but also from a recovery perspective, because you're simply having more calories, you're going into less of a calorie deficit. And in a race like the marathon, where, you know, at the end of the race, you are in a very large calorie deficit, and you need to start replenishing as soon as you can. Is there any uh, credence to that thought that you should continue to fuel from a recovery perspective too?
1: Yeah, there is. You're just, think about it as placing less stress on your body. So you're digging, the hole isn't quite as deep when you finish, when you fuel um, properly as opposed to if you don't that you just have a lot more recovery time and then there's also some indirect things that happen that can happen when you don't feel uh properly and that can be things like gut ischemia which can leave you just healing your gut for weeks afterwards uh more muscle damage which again more soreness more recovery time so it's not just an energy deficit but it's actually like kind of a whole host of things that can happen um if if you don't fuel adequately.
0: I remember when I first started running marathons, I had to start thinking about this because it's almost like the marathon and longer races are this like threat to homeostasis and you need to kind of keep yourself together by all means necessary. It's not like a a 5k or a 10k where you can underfuel and you know, you might not run as fast, but you're not going to put yourself in a hole that takes a week to get out of. So I think you should probably take your marathon and ultra fueling a lot more seriously.
1: Totally, totally. You can get through shorter events. You you can even sort of get through a marathon. It doesn't end well, but the longer the race, the less room for error there is with improper fueling, um, the bigger the the issues and the longer it takes to recover. And and even with like the half marathon and marathon, when you're pushing that upper end of physical capability, like our bodies, you know, they're designed to to go long and far, but maybe not that fast. And so we have to give them substrate and we have to take care of them because we're pushing that upper end.
0: Yeah. Let's take care of ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Now, one thing I've always been curious about is Is there an optimal type of calorie or, in other words, sugars that you might take in a marathon at the beginning that might be different from the end? So I've always thought that, you know, if if you're training with gels or whatever your preferred fuel source is, that's something that you should take on a regular interval throughout the course of the marathon. Is there, is there any value to changing the type of fuel that you're taking throughout the course of a marathon for better performance?
1: Um, not directly the type of sugar. Let's just back up and, and talk about the right type of sugar. So there's really good science on this. And we want to use two types of sugars because there's two different receptors in the gut that process sugar. And by using these two different types, and they are multidextrin or glucose, and the second one is fructose. When we use those two, they're called multiple transportable carbohydrates. It just means we're able to get more into our bodies without it backing up and causing gut disturbances. So when you think about the fuel to use, it's not just like random, like this works or this doesn't work. It's like, try to get a fuel or a type of fuel, um, whether it be gel blocks or sports drink that has those two sugars. Most sports companies know this, and so they create products that are going to sit well and fuel well, but make sure that you have the right type of fuel. And then you want to just be consistent with your intake and do it in training, and then you can mimic it in the race. And when it comes to what type, whether it be gels, blocks, or sports drink, that's a little bit personal preference. So if you want to start the race with blocks because you can actually chew a little bit and then go to gels later on. That's fine. And I think it's really smart as part of a fueling plan to figure out what what you like best, when you like best. And you might learn like in hot conditions, I like citrus gels and in cold conditions, I like blackberry blocks. And those little subtle differences can make your fueling plan just that much better for you. The one thing that you can add later in a race that's beneficial is caffeine. And caffeine is, you know, if you, if you use it on a regular basis and you respond to caffeine, it's a great, um, aid for endurance performance. And the way you want to use it in like, say a marathon is in the, the last third of the race. So start, if you are a normal caffeine, uh, coffee drinker or tea drinker, have it in the morning with your breakfast and then start feeling with non-caffeinated products. And then when you get to that point, like say mile 22 to 26, that's when you add in that caffeine and you'll just get a little bit extra boost. Um, I always joke there was a a Cliff uh, Espresso gel that was in the silver platinum wrapper. And that was like my platinum gel for the end of the race because it had caffeine and I just looked forward to that platinum wrapper, but that can actually help later in a race. I think the tendency runners think is like, I'm gonna do the caffeine early and then taper off it. And that's the exact opposite of how you wanna take in your fuel.
0: I always found it was helpful at the end of a marathon from just like a mental perspective, you know, cause you're at the point in the race where you start experiencing a lot more negative thoughts, you start doubting yourself, you start making more excuses and it becomes a lot easier to sort of go down this negative rabbit hole and a little bit of caffeine it perks you up a little bit. It improves your mood slightly. Even when you're at mile 23 of a marathon, you know, you can start to feel a tad bit better. And so I've, I've certainly, um, experienced firsthand those benefits. And, and I think the, the idea to find what works for you at different points of the races, uh, or of the race, you know, mile five versus mile 25, for example, is, is really valuable because, you know, you might love something when you're fresh, when you're feeling good, but then when you're stressed and you're experiencing a lot of discomfort, it it really can turn you off, you know, and I'm thinking about mile 22 of the New York city marathon, where I took an orange cream gel that I hadn't trained with and it just totally turned my stomach. Oh no! (laughs) It was not a good experience.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and that can make or break a race sometimes. So a good way to, to try that out in training, besides just the long runs, because sometimes in a long run, when you're not going that hard, it's easy to get like the orange creamsicle gel down. But when you're going hard, that's like, oh, that is not going to work. So I recommend trying so- some of your fuel in a hard workout. And that can be sort of closer to race day um, if you want. But actually, when you go to the track and you're like pushing, like try taking a gel. And just, you know, you'll, you'll know what works for you and like what flavors really don't, but that's a good way to, to mimic what you're going to feel at the end of a race. Cause it's hard for us to get into that state where the intensity is that high. And, you know, we, we're, we've we been pushing that hard.
0: Yeah, I like to experiment with it both in times of high intensity, say a track workout, and also times of of long duration. So maybe a, a 20 or 22 mile long run where you're just on your feet for a really long time, just experiencing what a gel is going to do to you when you're running really fast, or maybe you've already been on your feet for two and a half hours. I think there's, there's a lot of value in that.
1: Yeah, super smart.
0: Now, we've sort of danced around the issue of ultra fueling. And I do want to talk about this briefly because I feel like all the rules for fueling that most runners understand maybe go out the window a little bit when we're talking about really long ultras. Uh, I would just love to know how you personally think about fueling for a very long ultra marathon, whether you follow some of these same, you know, quote unquote rules that we've been talking about, or if you take more liberties with the things that you're eating or, or just kind of your perspective on, you know, how to properly fuel yourself for an effort where you might be on your feet for 12 hours, 20 hours, 24 hours.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. It's a bit of a hybrid. So I use kind of the same idea as um, getting simple carbohydrates to some extent each hour because you still need that that quick fuel to get into your body. But you have, one, the ability to process a little bit more uh, solid food or fat and protein. And two, if you're out there for, say, 24, 30 hours, I've been out there for 30 hours before, you need a little bit more because you can't just sustain your body off carbohydrate for that long. So how I think of it is planning my fueling each hour. And this might change depending on how hot it is, if I'm going through the middle of the night, if I'm up in the mountains, and I can't really use my hands because it's cold. But I try to have something simple. So that whether that be a gel um, or blocks or even chocolate, something simple that's going to get into your, my body pretty quickly. And then the I, I think of it as like a pyramid. So that's my baseline. The secondary fuel I'm going to do is a little bit more complex, but it's still going to be relatively quick. So that could be like a bar or like a peanut butter sandwich or just something fairly simple, but also not easy to get down, easy to digest. And then the top, the very top of the pyramid is things that I'm not going to take in every hour, but maybe every few hours. And that's going to really give me more of that fuel that I need for my, my body, not necessarily my performance. And that'll be things like <laughs> kind of whatever sounds good. It can be like, I don't know. I've had bolognese sauce before. It could be pasta. It could be, you know, a quesadilla um, with bacon. Something that's outside of what you're normally taking in to one, just keep your palate refreshed. Usually savory is is a good option. And then two, just give you a little more sustenance. So with an ultra, I think it's a little more complex. And normally when I work with an athlete who's training for say a 100 miler, we go through and practice different scenarios and have them try like, okay, so for your savory food, do pretzels work? Do potatoes work? Does pizza work? And they're well practiced in their fueling plan. So when they get into the race, they kind of know how to um, execute it because it, it is a lot, it's not, it's not as straightforward as like, okay, just taking a gel two gels <laughs> every hour and on the hour. And um, so there's, there's more subtleties, but generally the same idea, but just bigger, broader co- horizon.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Instead of a gel, you might have to go with a personal pan pizza or something similar. Totally. Now, were you
1: practicing
0: in training with like bolognese sauce? Like how do you know <laughs> that something like that is going to not completely turn your stomach at mile 50 or something of an ultra?
1: That's a great question. Um, so this is one of those on the fly. Like, it was actually at a race in Europe and they have like different food there. They don't really have gels and blocks and the, the typical aid station fare we have here. And I was in a real good bonk. Um, and that's what they had. And it just like brought me back to life. So to some extent, you have to just trust that, you know, what you take in is going to work for you. And you you learn that by experience, by trying different things. And I have a pretty good stomach. And I know that sometimes in an ultra, I'm not moving that fast. So there's little risk of like taking in something, I'm just going to go hike for the next couple miles anyway. So I, I'm a, I feel okay to do that. But um, generally speaking, <laughs> you want to practice with things before you take them in. Um, but there's always like, you know, troubleshooting on the fly,
0: yeah and you mentioned you you had you're experiencing a bonk. I think in those situations right you you kind of want to go into a little bit of survival mode where you just want to come back to life. You just need something that is going to really fuel you up and Do you you find a lot of value in just listening to your cravings? So if you roll up to an aid station and you're not feeling good and you see this whole spread of food and you really want to eat something there, say it's a slice of pizza, you've never trained with pizza, but for some reason that slice of pizza is talking to you. It is speaking your love language. You want that in your mouth right at that second. Is there value in that listening to that voice?
1: Oh, yeah. I'm going to go for the pizza. Yeah. (laughs) And and I especially trust that because – you the food doesn't usually sound that appealing, right? You kind of force it down. And it's like, which thing sounds less bad? <laughs> and you pick that. So if I come into an aid station, I'm like, wow, that soup or that broth or whatever it is, pizza sounds really good. I'm going to take that because that's usually something that your body just knows it's going to sit well, or you're craving like the sodium or something in there. And so I usually I usually trust that intuition.
0: That is good. I think all runners should probably trust their intuition when they're in a hole and need to get out of that hole. I want to back up a little bit and talk about not in race fueling, but pre-race fueling, particular to the marathon. Skyler submitted a question and apologies to Justin. The uh, our original question came from Justin. Um, but Skylar was thrown off by just the sheer volume of carbohydrate he took in. Uh, before his marathon last year, it just really threw him off. And so he's wondering, you know, what are the benefits of carb loading? And if there are, what is the proper technique for doing it before a marathon?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think in the olden days we always heard like you gotta you gotta pasta load right before a race and that just usually results in you feeling kind of crummy the next morning. So you wanna get enough carbohydrate, but you don't want to carbo load because it's it you don't feel good off that. You can usually feel a little bit sluggish. Carbohydrate carries a little more water, so you can feel like a little bit bloated. So it's kind of like the opposite of how you wanna feel on the start line. So instead of thinking about carbo loading, I just think about eating your normal diet, which should have sufficient carbohydrate. So if, if you don't have enough carbohydrate, that's something to be thinking about during training, because one, it's going to support the the training and the recovery that you're doing to prepare. And then two, it's also going to set you up well for race week, so you don't have to change your diet. Um, and carbohydrate amounts, I, I don't like to give like really hard and fast numbers, but somewhere between... For women, five to seven grams of carbohydrate per, per kilogram of body weight. And for men, somewhere between six to 10 grams of carbohydrate per kilogram of body weight is kind of a range to work off of. Now, that depends on a lot of different things. Um, but somewhere within that range is is probably a good starting point for an endurance athlete.
0: Now, you mentioned different ranges for men and women. Are there differences in ability to store carbohydrate or ability to to break down carbohydrate on the fly when you're running between men and women?
1: There are some subtleties, but for the just the interest of not getting too nerdy on science, it's not that much different. It just has to do with body size and the amount of muscle mass um, in the in males versus females. So for, for females, there's some, you know, if you're an ultra runner, and you're running like 120 miles a week, or, you know, crazy hours, you might need 10 grams per kilogram of body weight. So it just, it's more, there are like generalized recommendations based off of typical patterns we see and body sizes of men and women.
0: Oh, I see. So this is probably something where experimenting and training is a really valuable thing to do because it's going to teach you your tolerance level for a certain amount of carbohydrate.
1: Yeah, experiment... And or work with a registered dietitian or a sports nutritionist who can really help you figure out what do you need to to be successful. Because it, you, the thing is with um, experimenting is it's fine if you're really good at understanding how metabolism works, but you don't want to go too low in carbohydrate because too low one increases your risk of overtraining or not not overtraining under recovering. Or injury, illness, and it can just make you um, kind of stale too in training. And so, if you do try this, and you know, vary up your carbohydrate intake, things to look out for are just feeling like draggy or heavy a couple of days in a row, or mood disturbances, like just feeling cranky or what I like to call hangry, <laughs> hungry, angry, and clouded, um, like just fuzzy clouded thinking. That's a sign that carbohydrates too low. So if you feel that, that means you've gone too far. Um, it's hard to get too much, especially in this time where carbohydrate is kind of like, uh, we don't really feel that great about taking in a lot of carbohydrate, like the I'm talking about what we see in social media, <laughs> they're more like promoting a lot of fat, a lot of protein, which are good. You need that too. But carbohydrate is especially important for endurance athletes.
0: Now, I'm curious if someone is listening to this podcast and it's going to come out on a Thursday and they have a Saturday marathon, do you advise against any certain types of carbohydrate? I have personally had the experience where I went a little bit too hog wild on carbs before uh, my last marathon and I had some stomach distress and it was Primarily, I think, because I over-indexed on simple carbohydrate and just overloaded on some sports drink and, and some just really simple sugars the day before. So would you recommend focusing on just a balance of the two, a little bit over-indexing on complex carbohydrates, or, or how do you think about that that balance between the two different types there?
1: Yeah, I think first of all... W- you want to avoid a lot of fiber and a lot of like dark leafy greens and vegetables or spicy foods or lentils like things that can cause gi distress those are things i just say don't have two days before a race um you do want to have good food though you don't want to just eat like white bread and sugar because you're not going to feel good off that either so another thing that i recommend is trying your pre-race meal uh, before your long runs. So practice it. And usually I recommend starting with some sort of carbohydrate and that can be like a grain, like rice or quinoa, um, sit really well. It could be tortilla. Um, those are probably the, my favorite sweet potato can, can go in there too. On top of that, some sort of protein. So eggs, chicken, turkey are really good. And then some sort of fat, um, Avocados are usually a fan favorite. they taste good. some homemade vinaigrette, pesto, hummus, um, a combination of some of those. But that combination of like good carbohydrate that's gonna sit well, some good quality protein and then some fat works really well. And if you practice it in your the day before your long runs, then when you get into like your race, you're like, I've done this before. I know how it sits, I know it works for me and then you don't have that guessing game of like, uh, should I have a bunch of the sports drink or what am I going to have for dinner? Or I didn't even think about this and now I'm having pizza. I don't know. Does that going to work for me? Which pizza is actually a really great pre-race food. That's one of my favorites. Make sure to try it first. But generally speaking, if you get a good quality pizza, it, it sits pretty well. So practice, this is the theme, practice and training so that when you get into race week, you're just really comfortable with what you're taking in.
0: Well, I'm really glad to hear that pizza is nutritionist approved. (laughs) That's just fantastic to hear. (laughs) Um, Let's move on to an interesting question that I got from Andrew. Um, And I'm personally interested in your answer to this because this is something I struggle with. My listeners know that I have uh, three little kiddos at home. What are some common meals that you might cook for your family, particularly when you don't have a lot of time to cook. I think this is a a big problem for a lot of runners who just, you know, they want to eat well. We've been talking a lot about just great food. You're sort of making me hungry, Stephanie, but, (laughs) um, you know, you come home from work and your kids are hungry and you just have very little time to put things together. What are some of your tricks of the trade to put a good meal together?
1: Yeah, I've got a few of those. So first of all, you don't have to be overly creative with every meal. I think we we like to look at recipes and cookbooks or blogs that have these beautiful meals. And sure, those are great to do every once in a while, but it's not feasible to be cooking for like an hour every single day to prep a meal. So simple is okay. And if you have like three meals on rotation every single week, that's okay too. It doesn't have to be like this, you know, big ordeal every single Every single day or every single week. So that's number one. Don't be intimidated by the blogs or what other people say or or show that they're eating. Number two is prep ahead of time and make big batches of, of food. And I like to pick one day a week where I do this. And it can be as you're cooking dinner for that night or. After dinner, I find like a Sunday evening sometimes is a really great time to just do a little bit of prep. Like after you finish dinner, maybe you put on some music or a podcast or even TV in the background and just prep a bunch of things. And I like to do a mix of some sort of grain. So I'll make like a big bowl or a big pan of quinoa, uh, some roasted vegetables, and that can be like whatever you want, like sweet potatoes, Brussels sprouts, root vegetables, squash. Um, vary that up a little bit because you can get uh, a lot of different nutrients from those roasted vegetables. It's eating seasonally is a really good way to, to naturally mix it up. And then I'll often make some sort of protein as well. So it could be roasted chicken or uh, make a big thing of black beans in the Instapot or you know, something like that. And that way you have all of these things already made. And then they go in the refrigerator and throughout the week, you can just mix and match things. And so you get home and you're starving and you want to eat something and you've got quinoa and you've got some greens and you've got some black beans. That's a great start to a meal. And if it's in the refrigerator, if it's already there and prepared, that barrier of entry to eating well is so much lower <laughs> than when you go to your refrigerator, and you're like, what can I make? So a few staples that we make every week, and this has been kind of like new for me being a little bit busier now having a little baby. I used to love to spend time in the kitchen, but now it's like, okay, what do we got this week? Um, one of my favorites that we make on repeat every week is a noodle a noodle dish with some vegetables. So I get rice noodles and then um, whatever comes in our uh, CSA for the week, green vegetables, uh, peppers, sometimes it's turnips, (laughs) sometimes it's beets, I'll just saute a bunch of those. And um, I'll usually fry some tofu or chicken. And I just mix that all together. So rice noodles, a bunch of veggies and a protein. And a lot of times I'll put like soy sauce and tahini in there to make it like a, a sauce to go on top. But it's super simple. It takes like 20 minutes max to make from start to finish. And it's delicious. And it doesn't, you don't really have to follow a recipe. It can just be whatever you have available. So that's a really good quick one. And then there's always leftovers, which are great the next day. Um, Another thing we make often, we have three things. The second thing we make often is rice bowls. So again, having rice prepped, black beans prepped, we always have like avocados or salsa. And then you can just mix a bunch of those together, or just a few of those together. Like my, my son is one year old now, and he really likes the rice and beans. So we'll have that. And then he'll have that, which is a great just, you know, I'm cooking once for all of us. Um, It's really healthy, too. And then the third thing we do is pizza. And I have to admit, we I used to make pizza homemade, I would just make the dough and then Put the toppings on. Once you have the dough made, it's really quick. Um, but lately, we've just been ordering out. <laughs> but it's also another good one. If you're going to make it, the dough doesn't take that long. And if you can make like three pizzas, you're going to have some leftovers too. So um, that was a lot. But to recap, <laughs> prep ahead of time, do a little bit of planning. Don't make it, you know, take up a whole day, but just pick like an hour after dinner one night to do a little prep. And then two, it's fine to just have meals on repeat week to week.
0: Yeah, we do that too here. And it it is really helpful, I've found. And one thing that I've found works well for us is is almost like batch cooking light where I'm not going to spend a whole afternoon batch cooking a bunch of stuff for the whole week. But when I do cook dinner and I have a little bit of extra time, I'll just double up on a couple staples. So if I'm cooking beans, I might open an extra can or two. Or, you know, if I'm cooking rice, I'll make extra rice. And that stuff saves really well. And like you said, it provides that great base for the next night or for lunches or just for more food that you can have on the ready in your refrigerator. And I love that you mentioned a CSA, uh, community-supported agriculture, something that we used to get. We don't get it right now. Uh, Can you talk a little bit more about what that is? Um, It's not exactly the the most time-saving thing to get because you're just going to get a whole box of fruit and vegetables usually. uh, So you're going to have to prep that. But I, I think it's a really interesting way of eating seasonally, introducing more variety into your diet, and, you know, just exposing yourself to different foods.
1: Yeah, I, I'm a huge fan. Um, I, I like to eat local as much as I can. And that kind of varies depending on the time of year. But I'm, I'm in California now. I used to be in Oregon and Oregon was really tough, but California's got a, a little bit bigger growing season. So a CSA is basically a subscription and you can get it weekly, biweekly, um, monthly, etc. And you basically get a big box of whatever is in season. And I love it because it's, it opens up, like you said, it opens up your horizons to like new foods or like, Oh, okay. I got these turnips. How am I going to cook these? And like things that I wouldn't always buy, um, like persimmons, we got a bunch of persimmons and that was like, Hmm, how am I going to use this? It kind of gets you outside your normal thinking of like foods you know, you buy on the regular. And, um, it's local and you're supporting small farmers usually. So I think that's really cool. And then a good use of a CSA is that veggie stir fry, which you can pretty much stir fry anything in there um, with the noodles and it, it turns out well. So most places, like if you're within, I don't know, I would say most towns and cities have some sort of CSA program. So it's worth looking into if you're kind of interested in in mixing it up and it isn't super convenient, like you said, for having to prep, but it also just takes the guesswork away for you for trying to think about like, what produce do I get or what's in season right now? So it's kind of like, it sort of balances out.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because part of the the challenge of cooking food, especially if you have children and you're sort of not just cooking for you and another person maybe, but you know, I've got a family of five, it gets a little challenging sometimes, is taking the mental work out of it and really just relying on someone else to put all those vegetables in a box and all that fruit and hand it over to you so that you don't have to think about you know what to buy and and I really like how it just takes that mental load off of you I think that's really valuable
1: Totally and sometimes they even come with a recipe suggestion or like the website for the CSA will have like things you can do with the produce this week so I find that to be helpful too
0: All right Stephanie I've got a Provocative question here from Bradford. <laughs> I love it. Why should your average competitive runner, middle-aged dad type of runner, work with a nutritionist?
1: Oh, so many reasons. <laughs> so let, let us start. Um, number one, I think everybody can can learn a little bit about metabolism and how to fuel by talking with someone who is, you know, made it their their goal in life to study and and to help other people. So I think it's really cool when you learn about what your body needs and not necessarily just from a macronutrient standpoint, like we always talk about carbohydrate and fats and proteins, but like, let's actually talk about food. So how do you actually eat those things? And how can you do that for lifelong health? So that's the number one thing. I think it's super interesting. And then two, even if you're just like, what did he say? A middle of the pack or middle-aged man, you still want to get the most out of your training, right? You don't want to go to the start line and have the gun go off and someone hold you back and wait two minutes and then let you go and say, okay, go. You want to do as much as you can so that you're able to um, to train to the best of your ability and race to the best of your ability, wherever that puts you um, in terms of performance. So I think learning just a few basics of sports nutrition can really help you Race day, but also in your training. That's where most of the benefit happens. Is from fueling properly, and most people do an okay job fueling before, but it's fueling after for recovery. That's where a lot of people miss out on, like this huge window where you can really optimize your training and recovery and performance. So, um, I if I haven't convinced you by now, I think uh, <laughs> you know you can just learn so much and, uh, it, it really helps your performance, but more importantly, just kind of your health and, and overall just, uh, relationship with food.
0: Yeah. I noticed that, you know, I, I worked with a, a dietitian a while back, not really in a, in a personal perspective, but in, from a, on a professional project, but we, I learned a lot in the process and I made a bunch of changes in the way I approached my general diet and nutrition. And I found that, yeah, I felt better on a lot of my training runs. I was better fueled. I felt like I was better recovered from the prior workout, but a nice side benefit was that I just felt better during the day. I felt like I just had a clearer head. I felt more energized. Um, I was in a better mood and and I really feel like if someone is struggling with, with any of those issues, getting your nutrition on point could be a really valuable way of addressing those. And you might never know if it's your diet that's causing them if you, know, you don't seek out a professional and really work things out.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and sometimes it's just a, a subtle shift of like when you're getting in certain foods or the timing of your intake or just adding something, something more that you were missing. So it, it isn't like overhauling your whole diet usually, but I think it's really cool to, to work with, I work with so many different people and it's like problem solving, like, hmm, if we just shift this here and add this here, you're going to feel a lot better here. And it's, it's really cool.
0: Yeah, it's, it It speaks to me because like, as a coach, I like doing that from the training perspective, you know, it's like solving a puzzle and, you know, you, you certainly have to do that from a nutrition perspective. Now, are there different benefits for different types of runners? So if you're working with a 23 year old, highly competitive female, would you be really addressing very different issues than if you were working with a 45 year old, you know, sort of like a somewhat competitive runner, you know, who's obviously not doing it for his career, but still really loves it.
1: Yeah, they're going to be different. And it it comes down to more the goal of the individual, their habitual eating patterns and where they are in life. So obviously, a 23 year old female, we're going to have different concerns than a 50 year old male not that one is more important or we have to like spend more time on sports nutrition or fueling for health, but we are going to talk about different things and from the female, like making sure that she has normal menstrual cycles and getting enough calcium and protein to support the training load. And for the male, we want to make sure that he has good healthy fats and that he's eating enough protein to support his lean muscle mass and, um, you know, not getting in excess fuel that can, um, is not being used for for uh, training and recovery, so th- they're very different. But it's more just like the individual, their goal, and also just some of their history with their relationship with food. And I kind of uh, mentioned that earlier, but that's one of the biggest things that I do and that I find is really helpful is is trying to help athletes heal that relationship because food should be something that we enjoy. It shouldn't be a stressful, you know eating occasion that we have several times a day, it it should be something that we are able to be a little bit flexible and adaptable and actually enjoy and not, not feel this, this fearful, like (laughs) just strained relationship with.
0: Yeah. I think that's important here in the running community as well. Um, what about for the, the beginner runner versus the, say the, the professional runner, are there different considerations for those two types of runners? You know, independent of age, independent of, of, of whether they're a man or a woman is just their ability level. Do you talk about anything differently with those two types of runners?
1: Yeah. And mostly it comes down to the, the professional runner is going to be doing a lot higher volume of training, a lot more intensity. They're going to need more, they're gonna need more carbohydrate. And then also not to focus on like marginal gains, but they they might benefit more from, you know, if they've maximized everything, their training, their recovery, their nutrition, then we might talk about, okay, so what supplements could potentially, you know, increase your performance by 0.5%. Whereas in someone who's not a professional runner, and they're maybe not like a track or road runner, they're not going to notice those differences. So we focus more on the bigger picture things. But to answer your question, yeah, they, their, their recommendations are going to look a little bit different just because of sheer volume of training and that high intensity.
0: Yeah. sounds like there's going to be a lot of food included.
1: <laughs> yeah. A lot yeah. of food.
0: <laughs> All right, Stephanie, I have an interesting set of questions for you now. These come from prior podcast guest and ultra marathon coach and runner, Jason Koop. He has a podcast called CoopCast, but I think he jokingly wanted me to ask you about four slightly controversial topics. We're going to do something fun. We could probably spend an entire episode on each one of these, but I was really hoping for your one minute-ish soundbite opinion on these four controversial issues. Let's start with keto or the ketogenic diet.
1: Oh, head, palm on face, head into a brick wall. Um, so keto is not healthy for an endurance athlete, and it's not healthy for most people it, for a long period of time. Uh, you don't want to be in ketosis indefinitely because it's not good for your body. It is a way that our our body converts, when we don't have enough carbohydrate, converts other uh, sources of fuel into ketones that our brain can use in the absence of carbohydrate, it's a survival mechanism. And when people lose weight, or they feel great in in, um, ketosis, it's because generally speaking, they've reduced the amount of foods that they are able to eat. And so they're losing weight. And obviously, they feel better because they're, they're they're not getting in the same amount of energy. So for an endurance athlete, it is not healthy or beneficial to performance. And there's so many studies that have debunked this, like, year after year. And it just comes back to like, why are we still talking about this? Thanks, Coop.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Jason Coop. What about fasting? Do you recommend this for runners?
1: No, same thing. Same thing. It's kind of like, why would you want to not give your body fuel? There's no science behind any benefits for endurance performance by not fueling. There is some some evidence for timing your carbohydrate intake. But this is like the, the margin of error or the room for error is like very small. And so I don't recommend this for most people, especially female runners, because carbohydrate is so important. But training with low carbohydrate available can be beneficial in a, the cer- a certain setting, but that doesn't mean fasting. When you hear about those, those fasting intermittent fasting diets or, you know, people who just go on a a fast or a cleanse to try to reset the body, there is no science behind that. And it can actually be more harmful than, I mean, there is no good, but it it can potentially be pretty negative.
0: I read something interesting saying that men respond a bit better, and I'm putting better in quotes, a bit better to say a fasted run first thing in the morning than women do. And I'm curious if, if there are more opportunities for men to, to maybe use that strategy in training. Let's say they, they want to do a fasted run, maybe just to experience it, maybe to train uh, through that state, or maybe they're looking for weight loss. Is there a better reason for guys to try that out?
1: there's less negative consequences for guys. And the reason is women have a more robust hormonal response. And they our our bodies are, um, we don't have that room for error, because of the reproductive hormones. For the the males who want to do this, I would say if you want to do it just for the psychological or just to feel what it's like, you can. Um, But from a weight loss standpoint, it's actually I just want to debunk this because I don't think this is well known. Um, A lot of studies have looked at training in a fasted state versus training in a fed state and then followed the next 24 hours to see what energy intake was. And when uh, people trained in the fasted state, their rebound appetite and their energy intake was much greater in the next 24 hours compared to those who exercised in the fed state. So from a weight loss standpoint, it actually doesn't do what a lot of people think that it does. So... I would just think about the reason as to why you want to do a fasted run. If it's weight loss, it actually doesn't help as much as having a little bit before. And if it's performance, it definitely doesn't help. So,
0: excellent. I'm glad. I'm <laughs> glad we went over that. And and I think uh, it's it's likely one of those things that only applies in such a tiny tiny percentage of situations for the right type of athlete. And it's one of those 0.2% things that you really, most people shouldn't even worry about.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And just one little follow up to that too. I'm saying like what you should do, but if you don't do that hundred percent of the time, that's okay. If you wake up late and you go on a fasted run, the world is not going to end. Your, your bones are not going to break. You're not going to like set yourself up for failure. I just think the majority of the time try to make it happen, especially be for quality runs or long runs.
0: Yeah. Oh, I'm glad you said that too, especially before those more stressful runs, like a long run or an actual fast workout.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, what about the carnivore diet, a diet that I have absolutely zero interest in trying? Full disclosure.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, that it goes back to pseudoscience again. Um, you know, there's no quick fix in nutrition or weight loss or pre- sports nutrition performance. And a lot of these, uh, what do I call them? They're not studies suggested ways of eating are just based on on kind of like picking out that little piece and being like, you you can do whatever you want, just eat as much of this and like, don't eat any carbohydrate, and you'll be fine. And I think the omnivore diet kind of gained um, traction using that tactic. Um, But yeah, you need carbohydrate. And sure, protein is good, but not just protein, you need fat, you need carbohydrate, and you need protein. So that way of eating is not really sustainable um, for, for long-term and it's not, it's not good for health either.
0: I, I can't imagine that not eating any fiber whatsoever is also a good idea.
1: No. And a lot of the micronutrients are found in plants. So vitamins and minerals, and you don't really get them in animal proteins. You get a lot of, a lot of good things in animal proteins, but not a lot of the other micronutrients that you need.
0: All right. Our final uh, controversial topic here for you, Stephanie, is bonk runs. Now, this is similar to fasting, but maybe you could give a quick definition of a bonk run and then your opinion on it.
1: So, I think he's referring to probably just taking no fuel with you on a run and bonking and working through it. I just think, like, when you say that out loud, does that sound fun? Does that sound like a good idea? That sounds terrible to me. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm is, not
0: joining you for a bonk run. <laughs>
1: yeah, bonking is not fun. And there's, I, I think, if I were to, to think of why someone might do that, I think one, they're maybe psychologically trying to see what it feels like and to like be tough. I don't know. I, I don't really think that's a thing. I think you can learn toughness other ways. And then two, potentially you know, reading a blog or something like, I don't want to just keep using the word pseudoscience, but something that isn't really been proven in the literature that if you don't take fuel, your body adapts somehow different metabolically. And that's not true either. So if you don't train with fuel, you downregulate the ability to use fuel when you actually want to use it. So bonk runs are a terrible idea. And just think of how cranky you're going to be after.
0: <laughs> yeah. My family would not want to be around me, for sure. No.
1: Well, and especially having kids, right? It's not like you can come home and be like, and now I'm going to nap for two hours.
0: <laughs> right. Those days are over. <laughs> yeah. You know, my coach's brain turns on with this question, too. I don't think I would want a runner going for either a very long run or a more intense run when they haven't eaten anything beforehand. They're not taking any fuel with them because when they start to really deplete their glycogen stores and they are hitting the wall, they are bonking, you know, your form really gets shot, you start developing a lot of these inefficient movement patterns because you're so fatigued, you don't have the energy anymore. And I see a huge injury risk in that. And so from a long term health perspective, if you're doing these bonk runs, especially, you know, if you're a, a trail runner or an ultra runner, you're on some gnarly terrain every once in a while, I just see a big opportunity for injuries that I would rather avoid.
1: That's a great point. Yeah. And that's probably even more of a, of a concern in like the marathon and like when you're running on the roads and your turnover is pretty fast. Like in a trail, you might just walk (laughs) and lose some of that endurance, uh, you know, capability that you were otherwise building, but yeah, that you can have, if your form falls apart, a much higher risk for injury.
0: For sure. Well, Stephanie, this was really fun. Uh, you make these topics so fun. And, and I, I certainly learned a lot. I, I think your perspectives are just really helpful for runners. Um, so thank you for your time. Thanks for being here. If folks want to learn more about you, connect with you, I know you have uh, your website at stephaniemariehow.com. But where are some places that folks can connect with you?
1: Yeah, so website is great. Um, I'm probably most active on Instagram, Stephanie Marie Howe, same same handle, and then on Twitter at Stefana Marie. And everyone always asks, "What's Stefana?" That goes back to my cross country ski days, um, when you know most of the skiers are like uh, European, and so that became my nickname, Stefana.
0: <laughs> I love that. <laughs> well, that's great. I'll include links to all of that in the show notes on Strength Running. But Stephanie, thanks for your time today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great to chat with you.
0: Thanks for listening to this fun Q&A about nutrition for runners and how we can all better prioritize our running, our recovery, and our health by fine-tuning our diet. Don't miss the summary, show notes, and links and other resources from this episode on Strength strengthrunning at strengthrunning.com. And if you want Strength Running's best material on nutrition for runners, you're in luck. I partnered with a registered dietitian to create a series helping you separate fact from fiction, eat more sustainably, and fuel your body for performance. Go to strengthrunning.com nutrition to get your first lesson. I also want to thank our sponsor, Elemental Labs, my favorite electrolyte company. If you have a high sweat rate, or if you're like me and have very salty sweat, it's important to dial in your hydration. Elemental Labs is offering a free sample pack with four flavors and eight different packets at drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning. You only have to pay for shipping, which is five bucks here in the US. Elemental Labs makes electrolytes for athletes and low-carb folks with no sugar, no artificial ingredients or colors. My wife loves it and I bring it everywhere with me. I go to running camps and I hand out element salt. I give it out to my friends here in Denver and I send it to giveaway winners on Instagram. I actually just made my brother-in-law take a few boxes home with him after he visited for Christmas. And everybody loves this stuff. It tastes amazing. So, for those athletes running five or more days per week, training for a half marathon or longer, or you're running outside in the heat, or maybe you just need some extra tasty electrolytes to get you to drink a bit more water, an electrolyte replacement can help your hydration and recovery. I'm very encouraged by the fact that Navy SEAL teams, Olympic teams, and pro athletes have all started using elemental electrolyte supplements to improve their performance. Check them out at drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning to try their sample pack and get your hydration optimized. Thanks for listening, my friends. If you wanna help the runners in your life, forward them this episode so they don't start the carnivore diet. (laughs) Until next time.